Do you ever get frustrated or even downright angry as you look around and see the constant ubiquitous injustice all around us? Seems like it never ends. No matter how much we keep believing and teaching that hard work brings prosperity and my choices determine my destiny and honesty is the best policy, seems like we keep seeing the corrupt and lazy, even the inept, prospering, gaining power and wealth. We talk about equality, but the little guy almost never seems to get a fair shake. We pledge ourselves to liberty and justice for all while we watch God-given rights get trampled and the wicked go unpunished while victims suffer. Justice often seems to be for sale to the highest bidder. We see prosperity teachers getting rich while there are faithful Christians around the world enduring poverty and persecution, even here in America in the so-called Christian West, it seems as if there's overwhelming collusion to silence the voice of those who stand for Christ and to erase any influence of God's people and God's Word. While we have certainly contributed to our lack of influence by our own silence and spinelessness. The reason it seems like injustice is everywhere is because it is. We live in a sinful, unjust world. And the mechanisms we expect to fix it, morality, education, legislation, they offer us no real hope. It is an immutable reality that imperfect systems developed and implemented by sinful people inevitably lack the ability to bring real and lasting justice. Today, as we consider 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, our core reality is this. Our hope in an unjust world is the perfect justice of our returning King. Our hope in an unjust world is the perfect justice of our returning King. Let's read from God's Word together. As we read this today, uh, I would invite you out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, just to remind ourselves and those around us that this is the authoritative and inspired Word of God. This is God's Word. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, Among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. 
He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. Receive it in faith. Father, as we open Your Word today, we pray that You would open our hearts to it. As Your Word shines a light into our hearts, Father, change us. Cause us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might become doers of Your Word and not hearers only. This we pray in the name of Your Son, Jesus, by the power of Your Spirit, for your glory alone. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, uh, the reason that we've entitled today's sermon Proof and Power is that the life of the church in the midst of adversity and injustice is itself the evidence that God is at work in the church. And not merely that He's at work, but that He knows what He's doing. Isn't that good to know? God knows what He's doing. And it's proof positive that he is able to perfectly and finally bring real justice to his creation. This is rooted in Paul's flow of thought here in chapter 1 and ultimately in the whole letter. Last time, we considered this letter as a whole. And, and we saw the core reality, the, the melody running through this whole book, that in a confusing world, clinging to the truth of God's word gives hope to carry on. We saw that the chapters of the book, which were added by later editors, actually capture pretty well the, the way Paul structures his letter to the church. That doesn't always happen, but in this particular case, it falls out uh, pretty, pretty well with the units of thought that Paul puts together. As we look at the first section today, we see that our hope in an unjust world is the perfect justice of our returning king. <clears throat> Excuse me. As Paul praises God for the proof of growth that he sees in the Thessalonians, which serves as proof that God's selection of His people, His continuing work both in the church and in the world, and His glorious plans for the future are all intertwined and rooted in His sovereign wisdom and power. Though we live in a sinful, broken, and cursed world fraught with injustice, Knowing with certainty that Christ is returning to establish perfect, unbroken justice is a legitimate reason for undaunted and indomitable hope. This knowledge allows us to trade our sorrows and pain for the joy of the Lord, our helper, our shield, our defender. So as we walk through this, let's follow Paul's 
logic together. First, notice this. The life of the church is entirely from God. The life of the church is entirely from God. So as Paul is addressing uh, the Thessalonian believers, he starts out with this, uh, this greeting, which is standard. It's the exact same uh, wording that he used in his first letter. It is uh, virtually the same as he uses in most of his letters. There's a, a theme here. He addresses it from Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, depending on your, on your uh, translation, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in other words, it's the local church located there at Thessalonica, but it's the church in God, in God our Father, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of the church. The life of the church is entirely, entirely from God. We are His. So when he addresses the church, that's where he starts. Notice what he says in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we find grace and peace? It comes from God. It's not something we muster. It's not something that we achieve. Grace and peace flow to us. They come to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church. But he keeps going. In verse 3, he says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. It's, it's implied, and some of your more modern translations say both. Literally, it's brothers. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. There's a little bit of a contrast here that we don't want to miss. We ought always to thank God for you because your faith is growing more and more. And the love of every one of you, the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. So if, if their faith is growing, if their love is increasing, and this is happening because of something in them, why would he be thanking God? Wouldn't he be thanking them? He's thanking God because the reason they're growing, the reason that they have this faith, the reason that they have this love, and that it is flourishing and increasing, as he says elsewhere, is because God gives the increase. As he tells the Corinthian church, I planted, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. It all comes from Him. The life that causes the seed to take root that causes the plant to grow, that life is from God. The only source of life. The only life giver. This is why when God created all life, sin separated us from God and death ensued. When sin separated us from the source of life, what did we think was going to happen? Right? Death comes when the source of life is cut off. God is the life giver. The life of the church is entirely from God. So he, he mentions that he thanks God for them because this growth is happening. Therefore, verse 4, among God's churches, somebody tell me whose churches it is. It's God's church. Therefore, among God's churches, all the other local churches, there's one church one family with local households 
with all of these local churches, he goes and we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul goes to great pains throughout his writings, throughout his letters, to say our boast is in Christ alone. There is no room for boasting in anything else. So when Paul boasts here and elsewhere, his boasting is in what God has done. Right? It's If my weakness highlights God's power, then I'll be as weak as I can be. Because I want to boast in Him. So as he boasts to the other churches about what God is doing in Thessalonica and throughout Macedonia, that's his point. Paul's not interested in promoting the Thessalonians. He's not interested in going to the other churches and saying, man, I wish you were as good as those guys. They're really spiritual. Don't you wish you were more like them? Now he will use some of these comparisons to encourage one one of the other churches. He does that with the Corinthian church, a very affluent church in an affluent place. And he points out what's going on in Macedonia. Poor churches who out of their poverty are giving in abundance. He says, man, I wouldn't want to be the rich person that gets outgiven by the poor people. right?" But his boasting is always about what God is doing. What is God doing in the Thessalonian churches? Even when he's talking about the giving. It's not manipulation. His point is, look at how their abundant love, their abundant joy in God overflows in giving. Even though they have nothing. Whatever they do have, they're excited to share with others. Look what God did. That's his point. So he boasts. And he boasts about their perseverance and faith. He pers- he, he, he's boasting about their perseverance and faith because they're living out this faith by their perseverance as they are growing. They're increasing in their trust of God. They're increasing in their love for one another. And they're doing it in the midst of persecution and trials. Paul is saying all of this to get across the point that the life of the church is entirely from God. Now under this we see a couple of sub-points that we should be able to bring out. First notice that those who belong to Christ are personally invested in one another's spiritual warfare. Welfare, not warfare. That too, but welfare is the point. Thankfully it's printed so I can't mess it up too bad. Those who belong to Christ are personally invested in in one another's spiritual welfare. What am I saying here? Paul is excited. If you read this and you don't see the emotion that he is carrying here, then you need to read it again. You're missing it. Paul is he's excited. He's praising God. He's thanking God because he's so pumped about what's going on with the Thessalonians. Now, if you were with us before Christmas for our previous series in 1 Thessalonians, then you might remember that Paul spent three weeks with them at the establishment of this church, maybe a month. He's then chased out of there, then he's chased out of Berea, and everywhere that he goes, he's, he's facing this persecution. doesn't stop him, it only just scatters the seed that much further. 
but he's worried about the Thessalonian church. What if they what if they didn't stick? What if they didn't hold to the faith? What if the persecution that chased me out has caused them not to cling to Christ? And so he you know, he sends for a report. He he has his guys go back there and he comes back with the report. Timothy's like, "Man, they're doing well. They're flourishing." And Paul's so overwhelmed, he's he, he couldn't continue his work without knowing because he's personally invested in the growth and the faith and the love of these brothers and sisters. So he gets that good report and he writes to them, oh man, I'm so happy. We're so thankful. We're praising God for you. Now, just shortly after this, <coughs> excuse me, just shortly after this, uh, th- the events of the first letter, Paul is now writing a second letter because there's a, there's some confusion that's taken place. They're still flourishing, but he's getting word that maybe some of the false reports, maybe some of the false teachings have crept in. People have pretended to bring a word from Paul, or they've pretended to bring a word from God, and in the process, it's throwing off some of the believers. He's invested. As Christ followers, that's what we do. We invest in one another. You and I, if we are united to Christ, we are united to everyone who is united to Christ. So when Gary's sharing about uh, the, the missions that we're supporting uh, earlier in the, in the service, as he's sharing about what's going on in Hungary or Pakistan or, or uh, you know, Myrtle Beach or, or wherever it is that we're supporting people throughout Central Asia and China. It's not theoretical. These are flesh and blood people who live and die every single day. And so we as Christ followers are united to those who are united to Christ. And we are heartbroken for those who are not and will face eternity apart from God because of it. There is an emotional, personal investment in the church by the church. We weep together. We rejoice together. At times we bleed together. Paul's got skin in the game here. Do you and I have skin in the game? When we think of other believers, do we see one another the same way the world does? Do we see people as competition? Are other churches competition? Or are we all teammates in the trenches together, fighting for the same kingdom cause, working together to glorify Christ? Does it hurt us when we see people fall away? When we witness apostasy in the church, is our natural inclination judgment or weeping? I have to tell you, I've done both. I've absolutely, more often than I ever want to admit, been guilty of judging those who veer away from the faith. And I don't mean judging in the discernment way of recognizing truth from error. I mean the graceless way of looking down my nose at those people. How dare they? 
What's wrong with them? Other times, by God's grace, it has broken my heart and I've wept. As I've seen churches here in our own community and across this great nation and around the world, especially if we see so much of it in Europe, who have dried up and blown away like chaff rather than putting down strong roots into the rich soil of God's Word and drinking deeply from the stream that He offers. It should break our hearts every single time we see a church closed. It should break our hearts far more every single time we see a church that fails to cling to the truth of God's Word. That allows the world to shape it more than the Word to shape it. And yes, there is an appropriate anger and indignance that comes along with that, but never before or never above the weeping and brokenheartedness that comes. Because those who belong to Christ are personally invested in one another's spiritual welfare. You and I should be overwhelmingly excited when we see a broken marriage restored. We should be overwhelmingly excited when we see someone discover something new in God's Word. When we see a new person come to the prayer meeting or a new person come to the Bible study, not because we've added numbers and therefore we have some some kind of prestige. Come on. We should be excited. Because lives are changed. Because we see God at work. People growing in their faith and increasing in their love. And without going into a whole other sermon here, I think Paul's point, as he's made clear in other places, is if you're not increasing in love, you're not growing in faith. Those two go hand in hand and you cannot separate them. Those who belong to Christ are personally invested in one another's spiritual warfare, welfare twice now. Other uh, things that cause us humility. Notice also, spiritual growth and perseverance are from the Lord. I won't go into uh, great detail on this because I discussed it as we were reading the passage. But Paul is thanking God for their growth. He's thanking God. He's boasting about what God is doing in their perseverance. The reason that they're able to withstand the persecution and adversity that they're facing and continue to grow and flourish is because God is doing it. He's granting the increase. He is the one that drew them to repentance in the first place. Jesus said, no one comes to me except the Father drawing. So they come because God drew them. And the same way they get saved is the same way they continue in faith. That's what Paul says to the Colossian church. That's what he tells us. Having been saved by grace, continue to walk in Him. Walk the same way that you were saved by God's grace. He is the source of your spiritual growth and perseverance. The life of the church is entirely from God. 
Notice our second point. As we press into the next paragraph here, we see Paul making this connection. He sees that the life of the church is entirely from God. He boasts about what God is doing. He boasts about their growth and their perseverance in the midst of this hardship. And he he points this out out as evidence of the next point. The decisions of God are perfectly just and certain. The decisions of God are perfectly just and certain. Before we get into Paul's text here, uh, keep that marked in in, uh, 2 Thessalonians. But go back to the Psalms. In the middle of your Bible, when you see the Psalms, uh, look at Psalm 19. I would have you turn uh, to Psalm 119 and about four others, but uh, for the sake of time, we'll just have you go to 19. You see uh, echoes of this in what Dennis read to start the service in Psalm 30. Psalm 19 begins with this, this proclamation of God's general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And and I can't read Psalm 19 without thinking of Romans 1. That we are without excuse because God has revealed Himself to us in the things He's created. We have enough knowledge of God innately in, in the human conscience, in the world around us, to be culpable for our lack of faith in Him. What we don't have is enough knowledge of His character to actually come to Him for salvation. We need God's specific, personal, special revelation to be able to see how we can get help for our condition of death. So after He says this this opening salvo about the the general revelation of God jump down to verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple the precepts of the Lord are right giving joy to the heart the commands of the Lord are radiant giving light to the eyes the fear of the Lord is pure enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And he goes on to talk about the the benefits and the joys and and the, the, the fact that it's more precious than gold to take hold of God's Word. Notice this. Uh, just a little side note. You might want to jot this down. I don't have it in your program. But you can read it for yourself. Psalm 119, specifically verses 153 to 176. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. Psalm 119 is is just a a love song to God's Word. But you'll see parallels to what we're talking about here in verses 153 through 176. The decisions of God are perfectly just and certain. Notice this first point that Paul points out. Steadfast discipleship amid adversity is proof that God finishes what He starts. Steadfast discipleship amid adversity is proof that God finishes what He starts. 
I'm reminded of Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. When Jesus returns, when all things are brought to a head, you, if you are in Christ, will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. God will finish what He started in you. So, as we, as we look at what Paul's saying here, he's saying, look, all of this, all, the suffering that you're going through, your growth, your steadfast discipleship in the midst of this adversity, because you are suffering for the gospel, <clears throat> and God has considered you worthy of suffering for His name. All of this, this whole package, is evidence that God's judgments are right. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means at least, uh, I think most, most of the commentators that I see focused on the second part of this, but I think it means at least two things. It means that your steadfastness in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of adversity, your clinging to God, even when it's tough, your willingness to suffer for Him is evidence that God's sovereign election, His choosing you, was not without effect. That God knew what He was doing. You were foreknown. He knew you relationally before you were ever even born. And He chose you out of His sovereign grace not because of anything in you, but because of everything in Him. And He said, this one is mine. And when God chooses you, your walking in Him, your clinging to Him, is evidence, it's proof, of the efficacy of that call. That when He calls you, you're His. And nothing can take you out of His hand. Okay, so that's, the first part, at least this, and, and most commentators seem to focus more on the second part because that's where he's going in the next paragraph or in the rest of this paragraph, is that God's judgment against the wicked is proven right by the faithfulness of God's people. So God's sure and certain punishment of sin. All who are outside of Christ will bear that punishment. They'll face God's wrath. Those who are in Christ by faith, in Christ, have already faced it. If you're united to Christ, Jesus already bore all the punishment for sin that you will ever see. There is no wrath left for you if you are in Christ, because it already fell on Him, and you died with Him. And you were raised to new life in Him. Therefore, your faithfulness, your steadfastness, which comes from God, not from you, is evidence, it's proof that God's decision, God's effective call, God's putting His name on you was right and not without effect. And His judgment of those who are outside is right and certain, and it will come. 
Steadfast discipleship amid adversity is proof that God finishes what He starts. When He chose you, He gave you Himself. He filled you with His Holy Spirit. He placed His Spirit inside of us when we receive Christ by faith. And the Holy Spirit inside of us preserves us. He keeps us to the end. You, if you are in Christ, mark this now, if you are in Christ, you cannot, you cannot ultimately fall away. How could you if God has taken up residence in you? Even when we are faithless, He is faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Steadfast discipleship amid adversity is proof that God finishes what He starts. Notice secondly, God will not leave the wicked unpunished nor His children forsaken. The decisions of God are perfectly just and certain. We can bank on it that God will not leave the wicked unpunished nor His children forsaken. Be sure your sin will find you out. Nobody hides from God. Isn't that what he's saying here throughout this this paragraph? See if what Paul says here doesn't match up with what we read in the rest of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I'm still in the Psalms. Let me come back here. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Notice, by the way, he says you will be counted. You will be counted worthy. Not you might. He'll pray for it later, but he's pointing out, if you're in Christ, it's already done. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. We'll talk more about that in the next chapter. But this, the beauty of God's glory is as manifest, is just as manifest in His wrath as it is in His grace. In fact, it's His wrath that makes His grace glorious, meaningful, and beautiful. If there were no judgment, if there were no wrath against sin, if you and I as sinners did not have a reason to be, not not mustering up a reverent kind of fear as we talk about sometimes, if we didn't have reason to be terrified before a holy God because of our sinfulness, then what would it mean to be saved by grace? It means nothing. If I'm not sick, I don't need to see a doctor. We weren't sick. We were dead. Dead in sin and transgression. And yet, God, who's rich in mercy, He saved us by His grace. That is an overwhelming glory. That we may not in this life, because we, we're so tied to our senses and we're so time-bound, we, we, we only understand things in the dimension that we are used to. We're not infinite. And we don't know what God knows. One day, 
we'll know rightly, perfectly. Because we'll see Him face to face and we'll be like Him. But today, as you're going through it, as you see the just the junk around you in the world, it feels like, it seems like the guilty go unpunished. And it feels like too often the innocent face punishment. Victims treated like perpetrators. Traitors treated like patriots. Patriots treated like traitors. We see this kind of stuff all the time. And it's heavy. It's heavy on our hearts. Though we may not see or understand it in the short term, the Lord who sees and knows all things, even the deep things of the heart, the things that that we don't even understand about ourselves, He sees our motives. He sees all of it. He's not ignorant of our sufferings. Nor is He indifferent toward wickedness and injustice. In the end, nobody gets away with anything. It will be set right. And Paul is saying, listen, you can take it to the bank. How do I know? Because your steadfastness in the midst of this adversity, what God is doing in and through you, testifies against those who persecute you. Those who give you trouble, God will trouble them. And God will relieve you. How do I know this? Because you prove that you belong to Him every day by your increasing faith and love in the midst of adversity. If we claim to believe and we're not willing to suffer for that belief, then our claims may only be lip service. God will not leave the wicked unpunished nor His children forsaken. Notice next, God's power and glory will be displayed in His perfect justice when Christ returns. God's power and glory will be displayed in His perfect justice when Christ returns. First, let me point out before we get into the text, God is already powerful. Amen? God is already glorious. Amen? There is nothing that can add to or take away from God's power and His glory. But when He manifests it, when we see it, when He displays it, this is when we marvel, when we are in awe, we are in wonder. If you have not read, the the movies are good too, but but if you have not read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the whole Narnia series, but, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I would encourage you to take a look at it and pay particular attention to Aslan the lion who is a picture in so many ways of our Lord Christ. Lewis insisted it's not an allegory. It's just that everything that is heroic is found in Christ and so that's his picture. Aslan is beautiful and he's majestic. And there's reason to fear him. Nothing Nothing changes about Aslan. As he goes through, and, and, and at various points, the children and, and those around him will become comfortable with him. And they share in his love, and they stroke his mane because he welcomes them. But every once in a while, whether in wrath 
or in rejoicing. Every once in a while, Aslan roars. He displays what is already true of him and the earth shakes from the roar. This is how it is with our God. When Christ returns, He will not be more glorious than He is at this very moment. He will not be more glorious than He was as a baby in a manger. He will not be more glorious than He was hanging on a cross or lying dead in a tomb. It will, however, be displayed. And we will see the reality of Him when He comes in blazing fire. Let's read the text. Verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. This is how He is revealed. This is how He is displayed. The reality is already true. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. On the day He comes to be glorified, He was already glorious, now He will be glorified in His holy people, glorified in us, in His church, and to be marveled at among those who have believed, only those who have believed can truly grasp it and marvel at Him. Others will cower in fear. But the worshipful marveling is reserved for those who trust Him. And he points out that, that faith element by saying, this includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. God's power and glory will be displayed in His perfect justice when Christ returns. Notice that Paul does not promise that if we just have faith, everything will be smooth and all the injustices that sin brings will disappear. It's not what he's saying. That's the message many false teachers have been selling and too many hungry souls have bought the lie. Nor is Paul's message what Marxist philosophy calls the opiate of the masses, that, that pie-in-the-sky sort of thinking that would lull us to sleep with a domesticated, impotent form of religious passivity that sits idly by while wickedness runs rampant. It's not that. Paul's message of hope in this letter, and particularly in this section, is realistic and practical. Live in this world and live fully. But don't put your hope. Don't put your hope in the humanist expectation that we are progressing, that somehow we can work it out, as the Beatles said. It's a vain hope. History has continually proven it to be false. Put your hope in the only one who has the wisdom, righteousness, and power to actually bring perfect justice. He will do it. He will do it. He will do it. But He'll do it on His timeline. Just hold fast. Stand firm. Keep calm and carry on in the sure and certain hope of His return. 
Notice in the last section that the service of God is ultimately by His grace. The service of God is ultimately by His grace. I, I, I wrestled with this and I specifically chose the word service for a couple of reasons. We see in what Paul is, is praying in this next section that there is a work among the people of God. As we seek to serve God, we don't offer Him anything. We don't, we don't come to God and add to Him by our service, but we do serve Him. And yet at the same time, I wanted to use this word service with its active, active nature because the same word rendered worship in the Greek is also service. That's, that's the point, right? We worship God not merely with words, but with actions. And we see this here. Those who are growing in faith and growing in love need to be evidence. There needs to be proof. We need to show it. Those who worship God, those who love Him, who have received Christ by faith, show it. Their worship is a reasonable act of service. That's how it works. The service of God is ultimately by His grace. Now notice, we are serving Him, but we're not really serving Him because He's the one doing it in us. Again, to borrow from Lewis or a well-known 90s band, uh, early 2000s band, when we give to God, He is sixpence none the richer. We have borrowed from Him to purchase for Him. Whatever we give Him, we've already received from Him. There is nothing that we can give to God that He doesn't first give to us. He doesn't have His needs met by us. God doesn't have needs. We have needs. One of our needs is to spend ourselves in service to Him. That's our worship. So we see three things that, that Paul specifically is praying for here in, in this section. At least three. I see three, and maybe there's maybe smarter people see more, but I can, I can see this much. I'm going to give you these, uh, these points, and then we'll go back through the text. Notice this. We pray for the holiness of to which God has called us. In this final paragraph here, Paul is talking about praying for them. The same is true for us as Christ followers, united to one another, personally invested in the spiritual welfare of one another. We pray for the holiness to which God has called us. Notice also, we pray for God to work out what He has put in to us. We pray for God to work out what He has put in us. Lastly, notice, we pray for the glory of Christ and His church. We pray for the glory of Christ and His church. This is verses 11 and 12. Paul says, with this in mind, all, all the things that he's just said, right? as he's talking about the evidence, the proof, as he's talking about the power, right? all, all of these things, God's judgment, all of this stuff is in his head as he says, we continually pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling. He already said God will count you worthy of His calling, and yet He's invested in them and He continues to pray for that. This is... Uh, I, I'm going to try really hard not to go too far off track here. But this is why we can pray logically and rightly, God be with us. 
Isn't God already with us? Well, in a sense, yes, in that He is ever-present, right? So He is present with us even more so. When we pray God be with us, we mean God be on our side. God, come alongside us. Be for us. Isn't that always true with His people? God longs to bless His children. So even when He brings suffering and adversity into your life, He does so to purify and to shape you. God is always on the side of His children in whom His Holy Spirit lives. And yet these are the things that we are rightly to pray. We pray for that which we already know to be true. We pray for God's blessing knowing that God already intends to bless. Now we may pray for specifics that we don't know, but we do know, just as Jesus did, that God's will will ultimately be done. And Jesus said, Father, if there's any way that I can you know, not do this whole death thing, this whole humiliation, let it pass from me. Jesus already knew when He said that 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 there was no way. He said repeatedly to His followers, this is the reason I came. Should I skip out of it? This is what I'm here for. Lord, let it pass from me if there's any other way. Nonetheless, nevertheless, no matter what, Father, not my will, Your will be done. And before He ever prayed that prayer, he already knew exactly how it was going to turn out. That did not keep Jesus, God Himself in the flesh, from praying. Neither should it ever keep us from praying. Therefore, recognizing that everything that Paul is praying for here is coming from God, this is why he prays it. He's acknowledging that the service of God, the worship of God, the life of the Christian comes from, flows from God by His grace. Therefore, as he prays here, he prays for the holiness to which God has called the Thessalonian believers. That they would be counted worthy of His calling. Called out, set apart, right? That set-apartness is the holiness we're talking about. That they would be set apart for God, worthy of the calling, God does that in them. Notice also in verse 11, and that by His power, whose power? By God's power, right? It's not by Paul's power. It's not by the elders in Thessalonica's power. It's not by the believer's power. It's by God's power praying for you that by His power, He, God, may fulfill every good purpose of yours. Every good thought that you have, every intention that you have, everything that you've been set forth to do, everything that you hope to accomplish in Him for His kingdom's cause, that God, by His power, will fulfill that. And to fulfill also by His power every act prompted by your faith. And God's going to do that anyway. Right? That's what God wants. Here's a way to know for sure that God will answer your prayer. When what you want is what God wants, that prayer is already answered. That's why Jesus could say, whatever you ask in my name, not tagging my name on the end of the prayer, that's not the same thing. 
But whatever you ask on my behalf, whatever you ask in keeping with my will, you want my kingdom agenda, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your kingdom rule, your dominion. Lord, let this come and be done here on earth, in your church, in me as it is in heaven. When that's our prayer, that's a guarantee that God will answer it. We pray for God to work out what He's put in us. God gave you those good desires. He gave you those good purposes. He gave you the faith to take hold of these things. He gave you the faith to desire it. We pray for God to work out what He puts in. And notice lastly what He says here as we pray for the glory of Christ in His church. Paul is doing that very thing. We pray this, verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. Glory to God through the church and glory to the church because of Christ. And he prays this according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this comes from His grace. Our best service, our best worship, our best behavior, it's not from you. It's God through you. As we've sung so many times recently, yet not I, but through Christ in me. He is our hope. And so as we look at the letter, we recognize that in this confusing world, so many things going on that can distract us, that can discourage us, that can deceive us, clinging to the truth of God's Word gives us hope to carry on. And specifically as we look at today's passage, we see that our hope in an unjust world is the perfect justice of our returning king. We will not find perfect justice at any point through the U.S. Constitution, through better education, through better economy, So we, through all the morality we come up with, we get this idea that somehow having more stuff, having, having more brains will make us more righteous. Having more money will make us more holy. We look around and we know that's not true. Isn't it the rich, unjust people we complain about? So why would we want to be that? The perfect justice comes when Christ returns. This is the antidote for our anxiety. You and I deal with uncertainties all the time, right? I, I look around here, I see your faces, and so many of you right now in this moment have a heavy thing weighing on your heart and you don't know how it's going to turn out. What, what am I going to do? How can I change this terrible thing? And it's hard to find hope. And Paul is telling Stop looking for hope here. Find hope that cannot be taken away by clinging to the truth of God's Word. Because Christ is returning and everything will be set right and there will be no more pain or sorrow or shame or sin or injustice. He will be the light of all. Our only real hope in life and death for this world and the next is Jesus Christ. And Him alone 
Not Jesus plus, Jesus alone. Even when you can't see it, even when you can't understand what He's doing, cling to the truth of His Word and His faithful promise to return and set all things right. Our hope in an unjust world is the perfect justice of our returning King. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, as we, um, as we conclude the service today, I pray that You would drive deep into our hearts the knowledge that Your Word is trustworthy. That every one of Your promises that You have ever made to Your people, we can know that You say yes and amen to us in Christ. You keep Your Word. You finish what You started. You have called us into a into a relationship with You that, that is so unbelievably one-sided that there is nothing else that we can logically do but offer You our lives. Father, right now in this moment, I ask, uh, Lord, I plead with You to shift our priorities. Starting with me, Lord, Change my heart. Change my priorities. That I and, and all who hear my voice right now would cling to Your Word as clinging to the very feet of Jesus Himself. Lord, we don't worship the book. We worship the One who wrote the book. So teach us to hold loosely to the things of this life. Lord, we, we don't want to be passive. We don't want to be this pale living sort of Christian that checks out and doesn't care about the world around us and doesn't fight for justice, doesn't love mercy. Teach us how to participate in this world well and rightly and fully to never let any part of this life become an idol that we prioritize ahead of your priorities. Remind us daily. And Lord, remind us through suffering that our character is shaped for your glory. And that's the only thing that matters. These things we pray in Jesus' name.